Blog Talk Radio. Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. What's cracking? Welcome, peeps, to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie. And tonight we have a great episode. I'm going to already call this one a classic. We will be interviewing Dr. Maya Sheetree Klein on her book, The Dirt Cure. It was an interview we were supposed to schedule back for maybe a couple of months ago and couldn't get the schedules correct. And now we got those correct and she'll be coming on here in a few. But before I get her on, just wanted to remind you of a show I did the first Wednesday in June. We had to take a break for Memorial Day, so I didn't do a show that Monday. But Wednesday's show was with Dr. Stephen Masley talking about smart fat. So if you don't know much about your fats, you're not up on your fats, I would thoroughly encourage you to go back and listen to that show. Dr. Masley dropped a lot of science in that show about smart fats and how they help us with our hormones and all kinds of things in that show. So if you want to learn more about your health, be a little bit more healthy, get a lot more wellness, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that show as well. Talking about that, which is also say to connect with me on social media. I see a lot of people checking the fan page. A lot of you are not joining the fan page, but I'm going to be updating the, the fan page. I haven't done a lot in there. Shame to admit that, but I will be updating the fan page. I'll be updating my website here pretty soon, and you're going to see a evolution, so to speak, of my merging of health and consciousness. I was always onto the health thing and on the wellness, but now I'm merging a little bit more conscious because I believe that in order to be healthy, you have to be happy. And a lot of us out there are struggling with our our happiness. So I'm going to be merging that genre, so to speak, and you'll see a lot more of that emergence with the changing of the website and a lot of other things that I'll be doing in the future. So tonight, we have The Dirt Cure with Dr. Maya Sheetree Klein. and so excited to have her on. Came across a book uh, on Amazon and then started hunting, as I always do, to try to reach out to guests, and she agreed to come on. So let me just read her bio. Maya Sheetree Klein, MD, is a pediatric, pediatric neuro- neurologist, herbalist, urban farmer, naturalist, and author of The Dirt Cure, which we will be speaking on tonight which has been translated into 10 languages. She offers an integrative approach to neurological, behavioral, and cognitive problems, as well as chronic pediatric issues. Excuse me. Dr. Maya's philosophy is that the health of our inner terrain, our bodies, is a reflection of the health of our outer terrain, the natural world around us. Gut, immune, and nervous system, and the many microbes therein are a direct reflection of the food we eat, and where that food comes from, from the soil that's grown in to the water it swims in to the synthetic chemicals that it's bathed in. Fresh food, fresh food, microbes, and elements of nature, soil, sunshine, water, and fresh air make children resilient and prevent or reverse their illness. Dr. Maya Sutree Klein, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I was talking to you before we got on, and I know that we are our schedules crossed, so it's great to have you. I had the book for a while, so I got a chance to really thoroughly grow, go through it and 
I have a lot of questions for you tonight, which I'm sure you'll be able to answer. But to, <laughs> but to get the interview started, I wanted to just, um, on the jacket of your book, the, the front cover of the book, you talked about uh, your son's illness and how it kind of started you on your journey. So I wanted you to, sh- to share that with the audience. Well, you know, I actually, um, I think I was always interested in uh, in integrative medicine and you know I even got inspired to go to medical school by um, listening to Bill Moyer's special healing and the mind which was out a long time ago and he interviewed a lot of great uh, great sort of integrative pioneers at that time Um, but you know you go to medical school and uh, you kind of forget about all of those things because it's just a lot of information and a lot of um, you know, a lot of work, and uh, so I had my kids during my training, in um, one in medical school, one in residency, and one during my uh, neurology fellowship, and my son was, um, you know, my third child. Um, he, at about a year old, he uh, started to have um, breathing issues and looked kind of like it was, you know, turning into asthma and he was doing a lot of wheezing and rapid breathing and really having a lot of struggle and um, and at the same time started to have kind of a developmental uh, plateau. So he'd spoken kind of early, uh, around eight months and was, you know, gaining words and then suddenly when he started to get sick he really stopped gaining new words uh, kept the words he had, but he didn't get any new ones, and um, he started to fall a lot, you know, so he wasn't really able to to keep his balance as well. It was obviously pretty terrifying. Um, you know, I think it would be for any parent, but as a pediatric neurologist, it was very scary. And, um, and what was particularly really, I'd say, disturbing and odd about the whole situation was that, you know, I was taking him to... to doctors, my colleagues, and saying, you know, this is what's going on, and um, no one really seemed to think very much of it. You know, the pediatrician said, well, you know, he has, looks like he has asthma, and gave him antibiotics, gave him, uh, you know, inhalers, gave him steroids, and he was on that for 10 months almost continuously. Um, you know, my neurology colleague said, no, I think he's okay, let's watch and wait, and um, the allergist wouldn't even test him for all the things I thought he needed to be tested for. So it took 10 months of really doing a lot of advocating, researching, and ultimately I found another doctor who did allergy testing and found out that my son had a horrible, severe allergy to soy, and he'd been drinking soy milk every day. Um, because he was reacting to dairy, and at the time I thought, well, soy, you know, soy is good because it's healthy, and you know, he's not, he's not uh, getting the food, the food he that seems to be, you know, making his stomach hurt. And it turned out that that was what was making him sick that entire time, which, uh, you know, was pretty shocking and really made me rethink everything I'd learned. Because of course, you know, okay, so maybe a food you ate or drank could ca- could maybe trigger asthma, but the fact that it caused so many neurologic symptoms made me, you know, really open my eyes to the idea that food was playing a much, much bigger role in probably most of my patients' health, and that kind of got me down the rabbit hole, so here I am. 
Yeah. I, one of the questions that, that is always intriguing to me is, and I've talked to many physicians. I was in the pharmaceutical industry as well for a while. And um, even talking to interviewing people now, it seems as though something has to happen for them to kind of take another route. And it seems like that thing happened with you and your son. Do you think that if that hadn't happened, would you be on this journey of really kind of stepping out on, a, like I would say, a solo mission and saying, hey, this food is not good for us. This is the things that we should be feeding our children. Have, if have this had not what have happened to your son, uh, how did that influence you? Or would you just still would have been on the same path, you think? Well, I would say... Um you know, I I think I probably would have come back to, you know, the things that I was interested in when I first started. But, you know, I have um, a belief that children really act as our spiritual teachers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that my son kind of really knew how to direct me exactly to where I needed to be. Um you know, through this this process. I mean, I think, you know, it certainly was, it, it made everything very clear to me. Um, and certainly, I think you're right, that it's always more powerful when you have to go through it in your own life. I mean, whatever I felt about, you know, holism and, you know, the idea that you know, the mind-body connection and all of these different things that I really was very interested in and actually even wrote um, wrote about in my medical school essay. Somehow they let me in. <laughs> but um, I really was interested in it. But I think, you know, who knows? Because it's definitely easy to get kind of sucked into this uh, way of thinking that, you know, in medicine, actually... Um, even though I think, you know, in general, physicians are a group of really, really intelligent people, um, I would say thinking differently is not encouraged, <laughs> to put mm-hmm. it mildly. So if you're someone who thinks differently than, um, than other people, you will suffer a lot as a physician. And I think, you know, the way that, uh, you know, the way that we, we step out, you know, of the status quo uh, is one we're called to. You know, so it could be a personal issue with yourself, with your family. Um, but, you know, I think those are always learning. Those are always learning situations for for each of us. Yeah. In your book, you talked about um, being an expert on your own child. And I know for a lot of parents, when, when a lot of parents take their kids into the doctors, is, is if the doctor is the expert and they're afraid to volunteer information, um, how important is it for you in your practice, you're seeing children, to get the parents involved and kind of go on the parents' intuition about what they know about their, their child? Well, you know, my feeling is I'm the expert in what happens in a lot of children, mm-hmm. but parents are the expert in their own child. They, No one can ever know You know, no one can ever know your child better than you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and so I think that intuition is um, really invaluable. And um, 
I am I'm very much a fan of, uh, well, I mean, I think it's critical. I mean, it's more than just that I appreciate it, but I think it's critical to really help heal a child, to have parents uh, be a part of that. And I've had parents say to me, you know, we've talked about doing a particular course of treatment. They've said, you know, something about that makes me feel really, really uncomfortable. And we might talk about the reasons, you know, but if they say, I just don't feel good about it, I'm not going to try to shove that down their throat because I think, honestly, um, you know, thankfully I have a lot of tools in my toolbox. I don't just have Mm -hmm. one thing to do. Um, Sometimes the thing that we do might end up being medication. Maybe that's going to be the thing that's going to be more comfortable for the parents, um, and their gut says, you know, yes to that. Um, But for me, having the parents feel good about what we're doing, it's not about me telling them what to do. It's about, you know, working together. Um, and I think that's really critical. I think there are some great doctors who do that, and I think uh, I wish more doctors did, you know, because I know when I'm a patient, you know, when I'm with my kids, I, I, I don't always feel respected by, you know, other doctors I go see, and I think that's, you know, it's absurd. I mean, I'm a doctor, and I feel like I have, you know, I would say, uh, you know, an equivalent amount of information often to a doctor that I might be taking my kids to see, at least on some level. Um, but very often, you know, like when I was going to the allergist way back when with my youngest son, I was just treated like a neurotic mother, you know, wow. and that's really demeaning and, uh, you know, disempowering. And uh, in the end, it took, it took what I figured out to help him, not what, not what everyone else was, you know, saying. Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of what I hear when I'm interviewing people, a lot of what I read is that most of the time, and I experienced this with my mother. My mother passed in uh, 2005, and um, I remember the doctor, when I talked to the doctor in the hallway, and he told me, he said, Darren, there's no more that we can do for your mom. And a lot of times what will happen is when you see uh, you're dealing with the uh, the wellness sphere is that You'll have people that come in, and I'm sure you experience this with kids who have gone every route. Parents have taken their kids to every doctor, every specialist, and their specialist says that there's no more that we can do. How important is it for you when you see these these parents and they have their kids and their kid, it's the last resort that you give them some type of hope and some type of encouragement that there is an ending or a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I think that... Um you know, I'm certainly blessed to be able to work with children who, uh, you know, tend to be, I think, certainly more resilient um, in general, you know. But I think, I just don't believe really that most health issues are set in stone. And uh, that's been my experience as well, is that, you know, we've sort of made these assumptions like once you have this disease you'll always have this disease you'll never be able to xyz um that's because i've seen you know a lot of uh you would almost say miraculous kind of turnarounds i just know that um there's always the possibility of improvement so i'm not going to ever promise parents oh for sure this you know we can totally reverse this because we don't know um and i don't think it's fair to guarantee a very specific outcome, but I I feel like I can almost always say we are going to help significantly improve your child's quality of life, and it could be anywhere from 
um, you know, just like a kid who, um, you know, who doesn't sleep except for three hours a night, um, getting them to sleep through the night. So I had one child who had autism, and he, um, you know, he just couldn't sleep at night. He would be up the entire night except maybe for three hours of sleep, and his obviously his family was going completely crazy. Um, you know, and when we got, we did a lot of work. Um, they'd come to me, had already seen a lot of doctors. Uh, we got him sleeping. You know, mm. he, it wasn't like he was completely cured from, you know, from all the things that he was, that he was dealing with, but he was, he was sleeping through the night and his family, I mean, everyone felt a thousand times better and he felt a thousand times better. So sometimes it's taking things and, you know, just finding what the most important issue is at that time. Um, but I've seen really dramatic improvements as well. So I've seen kids who have completely kind of outgrown or stepped out of their autism diagnosis, kids who have been in special classrooms, who have been in, moved to mainstream classrooms and are graduating from high school, graduating from college. Um, you know, I, I think I've seen incredibly inspiring stories. I've seen kids stop having seizures and not being on medication. Um, a lot of a lot of parents are told, you know, you're never going to get your child's never going to get better. Or this is a lifelong problem. Um, I just don't believe that hmm. most of the time. Yeah, <clears throat> it seems as though, uh, and I'm sure you experienced this, and you touched on it in your book that chronic illness, not just among kids but adults as well, has become the new normal. Why why is that happening? Well, I think. First of all, you know, I think it's happening on two levels. I mean, in, on the one hand, it's happening on a physical level. Um, and, you know, that can be anything from, I don't think most people even, most people don't even know a family that doesn't have a kid with asthma or chronic ear infections or eczema or ADHD. I mean, so many families are dealing with that in at least one of their children. Um, you know, migraine headaches or, you know, learning disabilities. There's, there's, there's sort of this um, issue now among, among families where, you know, we see this and it becomes so common um, that we just start to think this is, this is the way it is. And I've had parents come to me and I say, you know, has your child ever had ear infections? And they'll say to me, oh, no more than normal. So sometimes I have to say, you know, some kids never get an ear infection, have never had an ear infection in their whole lives. And they look at me, you know, these families might look at me completely stunned, you know, and then they say, well, you know, I guess, okay, well, he has an ear infection three times a year. And so that could be, you know, an eight-year-old child who's had almost 25 ear infections in their lives, and they think this is normal. Um, so, you know, why is that happening? I think... You know, obviously, it's a pretty involved question um, that I try to answer in the dirt cure. But I think the short answer is um, we've we've increased uh, we've increased kind of the challenges that these kids are facing. Um, largely, I think by sanitizing them, you know, mm -hmm. using steroids, using antibiotics, using bleach, using hand sanitizer, even keeping them indoors, not letting them get outside and get dirty. Um, that makes their bodies less able to kind of bounce back and be resilient um, when they're challenged, and we're all going to be challenged. 
Um, and then I think they're less nourished than they used to be. So a lot of our food is processed. Um, and even if it isn't processed, it, a lot of it is, is uh, less nutrient-dense. You know, the way that we prepare it, the way we grow it, um, you know, it's, our soil is not as rich as it was. And, you know, we need to be really mindful, I think, most importantly, about where our food is coming from and then letting kids get outside, get dirty, um, not, you know, not medicating them for every little infection um, and uh, let them become more resilient. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about that is, um, <clears throat> and I'm going to use a term called wussy. Are we are we making our kids wussies? Because I remember when I was a kid, I played in the dirt. I mean, I, I would go out uh, after it rained and, and stomp around in the puddles and, and do all kinds of things. And I don't ever remember being that sick. And I don't see kids doing that now. I went to the beach. I live here in Florida. I went to the beach Sunday, and I saw some kids playing in the sand. But as a whole, you don't see kids now playing in dirt, playing in sand, and getting dirty outside and really enjoying the earth anymore has that kind of made the kids today more what i would term wussy like that they can't bounce back they can't they, their immune systems are not just as built as strong as say mine was at when i was their age well i think that there's a certain element of truth i mean i would say um we're definitely very fearful you know i think parents are very fearful and you know everything feels scary. If your child has a fever, it's scary because it could mean terrible things are going to happen. We've become very afraid of that. Um, you know, if you if your child's outside, you know, there's stranger danger. They could, you know, fall off their bike or fall out of a tree and break a bone, you know, get hit by a car, right? There's all these things. Even, you know, when I put up pictures of nature in, you know, PowerPoint, presentations I've done. I had one parent come up to me at the end. She was very upset because I had a, you know, a photograph of nature that had a deer, a beautiful deer. She came up and said, I'm so upset that you put that in there because, you know, I've suffered, my child has suffered from Lyme disease and I've suffered with Lyme disease. And when you put that deer there, it's like, you know, all I could think about were ticks. And, and I think people, you know, I mean, obviously Lyme disease has become a real issue, but it's, you know, all of these things are kind of scaring scaring us indoors, scaring our kids indoors, and, and it's sort of making us into very, making us very fearful and making them very fearful. Um, and so I think ultimately, you know, what's happening outwardly, you know, and what we're seeing, the way we're treating our kids, it's also happening inside in the way that you mentioned, where their immune systems um, are, you know, their guts are not getting exposed to all the organisms, the diverse organisms that they need to be exposed to. Um, their immune systems are not um, kind of learning how to, how to interact with very diverse organisms and compounds in the way that they used to um, and that they need to. They need that in order to develop appropriately. And their nervous systems even aren't getting the same kinds of stimulation um, you know, from getting outside and doing all the kinds of things that kids naturally do. I mean, I too, you know, I used to bike around the neighborhood. My, we didn't have cell phones. My mom didn't really know where I was. She knew I was in the neighborhood somewhere. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I would just be on my bike, and I was like, whatever, 8, 10 years old. I'd go play by the creek. I'd go to this friend's house. We'd all go to that friend's house. And then when it got dark, you know, that's when we were supposed to all come inside. And, uh, you know, 
we're the parents now who most of us lived like that, and we're seeing, you know, we're not letting our kids do the same thing. Yeah. My mom used to say, don't let the streetlight beat you home. (laughs) So so you knew to have your butt in the house by the time it was dark. Um, I'm going to just speak on my own uh, personal experience here. And one of the phenomena that I experienced uh, when I was in pharma was I sold antibodies. That's my primary product line. And it was good for me then because anytime a doctor wrote a script for antibiotics, I actually benefited from that. But one of the strange things that always came out of that in my conversations with uh, medical doctors was that they, when parents brought their kids in, they would specifically request antibiotics. And what I saw was uh, building up resistance to the antibiotics because the doctor was never making sure that it was a true bacterial infection versus a viral infection. And um, so the doctor would, because the parent would request it, the doctor would just write the script, and then next thing you know, the child wouldn't get better, and then you have to go to a, another degree of antibiotics, something stronger, mm-hmm. in order for it to to work. I'm, and I'm sure you've seen that or heard of that phenomenon mm-hmm. as well. Um, there's two degrees to this question because you get people who are on the holistic end, where, okay, I don't want to give my child any antibiotics um, because they know the effects of antibiotics, but then again something could occur where they need the antibiotics. So I guess what I'm asking is when does the benefit outweigh the risk and when should you wait? Should you just say, hey, you know what, um, my child's sick, I'm going to wait a week or, you know, a couple of days before I, I go to the doctor and request antibiotics or get some antibiotics. When is that, is there any safe time in there? How long should you wait before you want to throw antibiotics on something, or you might say, well, you know, maybe I can use something like an essential oil. What's what's the, well, the time frame here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question. I think it, you know, that comes along both with treating fevers and what do you do when you when your kid has a fever, and it also comes when, you know, you're we're asking the question, you know, are we ready to really kind of treat this infection? And and I would say two things about that. You know, when it comes to a fever, I, uh, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually says fevers um, that are uh, less than 104 are actually not dangerous uh, in terms of the temperature. I mean, in other words, a fever can be a sign of a serious infection. But um, so if you see a fever in a newborn, that's very you know, you take that seriously. If you see a fever in a child who's really immunosuppressed, let's say on chemotherapeutics, so take that very seriously. Um, but And if you see a child, you know, your child looks toxic to you and you think there is something really wrong here, you know, which gets us back to that parental intuition, you know, then, yeah, they need to be looked at right away. But most of the time, you know, because fever, of course, can be a sign of a serious infection. That is a reason that you could have a fever. Most of the time, though, you know, Fever is actually the body's own form of an antibiotic. It's actually fighting the infection um, for us. And it actually, you know, there's a whole cascade of other things that are not just the fever. The fever is one symptom of this whole, what we call an inflammatory cascade, that is actually taking care of us, you know, making sure that no organism is growing too far out of control so we're not, you know, we're not going to have a serious infection. So I'm really very interested in, you know, letting fevers play out um, unless you're in one of those situations that we mentioned. And, of course, you know, if you know there's a, 
you know, a terrible ear infection or something like that going on, you know, then we come to the question of, okay, you know, you're sick, your child actually has something that could be treated with antibiotics, should you treat it with antibiotics? And, um, you know, of course, that's something that we have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. But what I will say is um, I don't just say, okay, do nothing. Um, You know, you brought up essential oils, which, you know, there's some very uh, good data actually, particularly on surgical, uh, from surgical journals, uh, Mm -hmm. because essential oils have been studied now in several um, published studies on um, resistant bacterial wound infections um, and have actually been shown to be very effective in many of those cases, including in MRSA, like in very resistant infections that are very difficult to treat with antibiotics. So, um, you know, there are things like that if we're talking about a topical or wound infection. Um, But, you know, I'm a big believer in supporting the immune system. And while some people feel like that sounds like, you know, been told, oh, supporting the immune system, it sounds so woo-woo, but actually it's really not. There's very good science um, behind, let's let's say, something like medicinal mushrooms. Um, And and when I say good science, I'm talking about, you know, uh, using turkey tail mushroom, for instance, as a treatment for breast cancer. There, There are some very interesting studies, some of which have been published and some that are going on right now, looking at um, looking at the ways that mushrooms can, uh, like reishi mushroom, maitake, shiitake, turkey tail, um, and, and on, um, can treat a lot of different viral infections. Reishi has been looked at for uh, hepatitis C virus, HIV, herpes simplex, like very, very challenging viruses to treat, um, you know, and... Uh, again, for cancer, for bacterial infection. So I always like to look at things like echinacea. I look at elderberry syrup. Um, I look to the medicinal mushrooms. Um, I'm using all those different things together to really support the immune system so that we're not just leaving it to, like, what might happen, but really to kind of do what I can using things that are not going to kind of decimate um, the microbiome, because what we know now is that with antibiotics, um, you can, it's sort of a great short-term solution in certain cases, but right. the long-term effects um, actually weaken the immune system because the immune system really wants very biodiverse organisms in the gut, and what giving antibiotics does actually decimates that. Um, so in the long-term, it's act- they're actually very unhealthy for the immune system. Yeah, I asked that question. I'm part of a forum, and there was a parent in there saying that their um, child was diagnosed with pneumonia. And I had seen pneumonia play itself out when I was in pharma, and I was like, dude, you want to use some antibiotics. Don't think you're going to do something holistic when you have <laughs> pneumonia. I mean, you, I was like, no, this the benefit definitely outweighs the risk in this, this aspect. It's just sometimes I think parents get tunnel vision. They start looking at everything. And like you were saying, there's so much fear out there. They start looking at these different things, and they're afraid to use antibiotics. But there are certain cases when antibiotics are warranted. And I, I just told them, I said, this might be a case where – antibiotics are, are warranted. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's definitely yeah. a t- I mean, you know, I've, I'd always tell people, and I've been, you know, I think on both ends of that, right? On the one hand, I have parents who, you know, are, are more interested, you know, will say, oh, well, 
you know, uh, don't I really want to do antibiotics, and maybe they don't need to, right, for certain kinds of, like, viral conditions, for instance, where antibiotics wouldn't even help. And then I've had, you know, parents who have said, I don't want to give some kind of medication where, you know, very clearly it seems to me that, you know, medication is really in order and really important. So, you know, that's part of how the whole discussion has to happen, but um, agreed that there are definitely situations where, you know, we just want to always remain open to what needs to happen and not get too caught up in one way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, You mentioned letting some of these things play out in our children. And in the book, you talked about how the body learns. And I came across this concept a while back of how the body actually learns through through something totally different. But that whole thing of letting these things play out, is that how the body actually learns? Because when we have things and our immune system goes through it and our immune system has the, I guess, you know, in the gym when we work out, we have muscle memory. Is this whole how the body learns is about a correlation of what we would say muscle memory is, where you let these things play out, your immune system sees them, it becomes familiar with them, and then it becomes stronger, or through that familiarity, it um, actually can uh, help the body better when something else comes comes the body's way. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's sort of, I think that I compare it in the book to playing the violin. You know, if you want your child to learn how to play the violin, you have to let them practice the violin or perhaps make them practice mm-hmm. if it's my son. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're um, going to slap their hand away, you know, every time they go to play the violin or you're going to um, – you know, have someone else come in and practice the violin for them and not let them do it, then, you know, they're not going to be able to play at the recital. You know what I mean? They're not going to develop that skill. And so you need to, you need to let, that's why it's really important to let the body and the immune system have some experiences actually of, um, of kind of fighting and vanquishing infections. Um, because each, each time, the immune system is always learning. Every every second, it's learning, and um, each time that it that it overcomes something on its own, it's stronger for the next time. And you know, the next time might be a a bigger infection, a bigger problem. So, whenever it's possible to do it, you know, when you're not in that situation that we just discussed, where ooh, you better get, you know, now's the time for antibiotics, right? I mean, there are mm-hmm. times like that. When you're not in that situation, you know, if it's possible to let things play out, sometimes it's worth doing that because, you know, ultimately we're thinking long-term and we want, we want that strong, resilient immune system that already knows how to fight and take care of things. Yeah. Um, getting into prescriptions and and. You know, I, there was a time when I used to be totally against prescriptions and all holistic, and now more of the mindset of whatever you think is going to work is going to work. To me, it's all about our beliefs. Um, but how many prescriptions are too many? Experience, too many prescriptions? Because you mentioned in your book, I think it was a uh, female patient that you had. Her name was Phoebe, if I recall, and she had some interactions. And uh, I guess the second part of that question is how often do you see drug interactions? Because when you start mixing drugs, and this was one of the things that um, I would always uh, kind of 
test my doctors on when I spoke to them mm. was that, you know, drug interactions, when you, you have to pay attention to what a patient is on when you're using an antibiotic or using something else, how often have you seen where they have all these prescriptions and they're having a different type of drug interactions? Well, you know, the first part of that question is, you know, when it's how many prescriptions are too many. I mean, to be honest with you, whenever I start a medication, and I do write prescriptions sometimes, um, or e-prescribe as it is now, <laughs> the state of New York, <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, you know, I am, whenever I start something, you know, I know this probably does not make me a fan of, <laughs> of pharmaceutical companies, but whenever I start something, I'm always thinking about how are we going to stop this. So to me, I mean, I guess I would say if you need to be on medication, you need to be on medication, but also I always want to have in my mind how are we going to get this person off of medication. And I usually am able to do that um, using, you know, diet, nutrition, herbs, um, mind body, the belief system, right? I mean, all of those things mm -hmm. together, and there are many things um, that I think are are elements in getting people off of medication. But in a sense, I would say if you need medication, you need it. Um, and on the other hand, I would say I'm always looking to have someone on no medication. I'd rather someone be on botanicals um, because our body has evolved, you know, our bodies have evolved with botanicals over over thousands of years. And, you know, pharmaceuticals, while they can be very effective, and while, you know, I've wanted to get down on my knees and, you know, say, like, you know cry and thank sometimes when, you know, a pharmaceutical helps someone who's really suffering, um, you know, I think I, our bodies are, our bodies struggle with them more. It's putting another, you know, it's another another component that the body needs to detoxify. Um, so I would say in terms of interactions, um, I mean, I would start by talking about side effects to start with. So let's say, you know, I mean, I use a lot of, let's say, uh, anti-epileptics. Um, there's a lot, a lot of kids can have real cognitive um, deficits, right? And we're treating children who are, have developing brains um, obviously, having seizures, intractable seizures or frequent seizures can be very disruptive to the developing brain. At the same time, sometimes I've had kids who have been seizure-free for a long time and they're told they need to stay on the medication for another year just to be safe. Meanwhile, you know, if we can wean them off the medication and they're not having seizures, then they're they can become so much more cognitively sharp and, you know, suddenly start reading or suddenly start functioning well in school, whereas otherwise, you know, what I've seen is a child who's on the anti-epileptic anti medication, they're struggling in school, then, you know, the doctor might come along and say, well, why don't we start, um, you know, a stimulant to help them focus better? So now they're on two medications because, you know, they needed to be on something for the seizures. Now they need to be on something because the seizure medication is making them dopey. Then maybe they're not going to fall asleep at night now, so they might have to be on something else that's going to help them sleep. Um, so it can get, you know, just in terms of dealing with side effects, it can get pretty ugly. And, of course, you know, as you say, you know, drug-drug interactions are a whole separate element, but something that can be particularly difficult um, in children. 
Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have to just, I think what it comes down to is we really have to treat the pharmaceuticals that we're using with a lot of um, respect and care because they're very, very strong. And I would say that even tenfold for children, whatever it is in adults, it's ten times more so for children. Yeah. So I've had a lot of jobs. <laughs> I was in the pharmaceutical industry, and I also, but they've been kind of added to my experience, and I've always said that it, this this path was meant for me. But um, just recently, maybe two years ago, I was working in a food sensitivity testing lab, and um, some of the things that I saw were really miraculous when it came to kids, and I wanted to get into talking a little bit about that because you actually mentioned a lot about food allergies, food sensitivities in the book. Um, explain what food allergies, food sensitivities are, and then um, I guess, well, just explain that, and then I have I have another question for you. So um, food allergies and food sensitivities are, um, and they're and they're two different things. I mean, food allergies are are particular, um, a particular in theory, a particular set of antibodies, IgE antibodies, against um, particular foods, you know, or of course can be environmental pollen and, you know, animal dander and other things like that. Um, and and the classic presentation that everyone knows about with allergy would be things like hives, um, things like wheezing or swelling of the mouth and swelling of the tongue or you know, of course, the, the dreaded anaphylaxis where, you know, it can become like the throat closes up completely and, you know, can't breathe. Sometimes vomiting um, is another way that food allergy can present. So there's a very particular set of symptoms that we're always, you know, I think assumed to be food allergy and other things were not. Um, and the things that might not be IgE-mediated, um, there are other antibodies that can react um, as well to food or components of food. And the presentation might be a little different. It might look like an allergy or it could look like other things. Um, In the case of my son, for instance, although he did have an IgE-mediated response to soy, um, which was a true allergy, and he did have asthma, his asthma wouldn't develop until the next day or the day after he would have a soy exposure. So once we removed soy, um, within three days, he stopped having any asthma at all unless he had an accidental exposure. And, of course, we discovered soy was secretly in everything because soybean oil in particular is, uh, mm-hmm. is used in every restaurant. So that was, you know, a, an unpleasant discovery. But, um, but sometimes you can have a delayed response. And this is really important to know because... Uh, you know, we think of anaphylaxis, for instance, that classic allergic response is something happening within, you know, seconds, minutes. Um, but these other responses that can be delayed um, can be 24 hours later, 48 hours later, even 72 hours. So you really need to think um, if you're concerned about a food allergy or a food sensitivity, you need to be thinking about what did, you know, I eat or what did my child eat in the past two or three days because um, sometimes when the immune system gets activated, the symptoms can kind of um, 
come one after the other or even delayed two to three days. Yeah. And um, I guess the second part of that question after you explain that, which is a great explanation, by the way, um, would be can these things affect our well, affect the child's learning. Like a lot of children have problems in school. Like I was a child, when I was a child, I used to have problems sitting still in school. That was always my report home. Your child has some trouble sitting still in school, and I learned later on as an adult that I did have um, food sensitivities, but I didn't know it back at, at, at that time, and it wasn't as big as it is now. But I'm just wondering how often is that that we're diagnosing these kids with ADHD? Um, uh, and other types of things when it's just that it might be a food sensitivity, a food allergy that they might be suffering from? Yeah, it's actually far more common um, than I think any of us imagined. Certainly Mm -hmm. any, you know, certainly not what I was taught in medical school residency or in neurology fellowship. Um, And, you know, I remember talking to one of my, one of my, uh, attendings during my neurology training, and I said, you know, I really think that food is a way that we could treat a lot of these kids who have attention issues. And um, she said, well, that's always what the parents want, but you're always going to have to come back to the medication. Um, So uh, I, I of course, did not follow that advice, and I went and I looked in the the scientific literature, and a lot of that, you know, is is in the book. But, um, you know, what I found was, on the one hand, there are a lot of uh, food, sort of processed foods and food additives that can actually be very irritating to the nervous system, particularly for some kids. So that can include things like... um, like uh, preservatives and food dyes, which um, actually were found in a, in a study years ago, a landmark study to, be, um, to increase hyperactivity. Um, and that was looked at in children who I think were, um, you know, t- two or three years old, and then in children who were seven and eight years old, um, and, uh, and, and children who were exposed to, who were ingesting the food dyes and preservatives um, in this double-blind placebo-controlled trial actually were the ones who were more likely to be hyperactive, even if they didn't have ADHD. So um, we know, that, we know that, that there are food additives that can contribute. Um, there are kids who clearly react to sugar, um, and you can watch it, you know, happen, uh, where behavior can become just completely off the wall. And, um, you know, that probably is mediated through insulin, which is a pro-inflammatory hormone, and, and that impacts the brain um, and probably causes a real, like, inflammatory response in the brain um, called microglial activation. And that can actually lead to significant attention, behavioral, you know, et cetera, kinds of, is- kinds of issues. Um, so... There are certainly the things that can be irritating. And then, of course, these food allergies um, sometimes can also be a problem. So by the same route, you know, meaning food goes in to the, to the, you know, gut, and it might be, you know, let's say milk, it might be gluten, it could be soy, right? Any of these things could be nuts. Um, but if there's a, there's a huge immune system in the gut, and it, it's always sampling everything going through the gut. Um, once it gets activated, 
the immune system says, okay, there's a problem here, it sends out messages to the entire body through something called cytokines, and all the immune cells in the body become activated, actually, throughout the body. Um, and that can cause, you know, an asthma kind of response. You know, it can, it can cause skin, you know, inflammation. You could see hives or rashes or eczema. But, of course, as you're talking about, it also can activate um, in the brain, and that can look like a lot of things. It can certainly look like hyperactivity or restless or ants in the pants. It can, mm-hmm. it can, it can present as headaches, migraines. It can present as explosive behavior. It can present as seizures in kids who have a propensity to seizures. So, um, you know, food is really driving a lot. It's, it's, we're putting it into our body all the time. It can really drive a lot of um, immune response and gut response and, of course, then brain response. Yeah, I got a lot of beatings for having ants in the pants, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> from my mom. But I think it was just because I was a big consumer of sugar and, and different things. Um, I didn't want to keep you more than an hour. I'm going to kind of like kind of I, I wanted to get some questions in that I think that, you know, most people out there would want to hear. Um, one of the things you spent uh, some time on in the book is milk and eggs. And I had so much experience with this when I was working um, with the lab as a territory rep that um, I would always have parents call in to me and say, well, I don't know if I, I should get my child tested. I said, well, what, you know, I would ask them what kind of symptoms their child is having. Most of the time it would be behavioral, like what we just talked about. Um, stomach aches were one of the frequent complaints from a lot of the, the, the uh, parents of the children. And I said, well, you probably want to go ahead and get this test done. And what I would find is that most kids, if not all of them, would always come up sensitive to milk, and eggs, and I had the darndest time trying to convince them that milk and eggs were the culprit. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and but once they took it out, and I had a doctor that tested her daughter, and I can remember this very vividly, that she wrote me a letter and she said, "I'm so glad that you had you convinced me to test my daughter." She said, "I pulled the eggs out of her diet, and there are no more stomach aches." And she said that to me was all. It was worth it. The, the the amount of money I paid for the test was worth that. So um, talk a little bit about the, the eggs and the dairy, because those are the things that I think that parents have a hard time understanding that are kind of producing much of the problems. Because I remember with even chronic ear infections, I pulled the paper off PubMed about um, dairy and uh, eggs being the culprit in that. And if you can pull that out, not all the time. But some of the time, I remember that if they pull that out of that, those chronic ear infections and different things can actually um, go away. And then um, because of time, I know I'm loading you up with some questions here. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about casein and the whey component of milk because I saw a lot of that when I, when I did testing or participating in testing with the parents where kids would come up sensitive to mainly it was always casein. It was uh, – Maybe never the way, but it was always casein. And then I know that there's this big controversy over casein with autism. So I know it's a loaded question, but <laughs> but just to save time, you know, can you take the two parts of that question? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the first part was about dairy and eggs, and you yeah. know, I think that is is really, um, you know, we're really talking here about you know when good foods are bad, right? Like yeah. you yeah. have a 
a food that you've always been told or taught was healthy and good for you, and then you hear, you know, no, this really healthy food is actually making your child sick. And we could talk a lot about why that's happening, you know, in terms of particularly like with dairy, um, because dairy is actually, you know, and I talk about this in a lot of depth. um, I'm very nerdy about it. (laughs) But, you know, what we do to milk, um, the many things we do to milk, dairies become actually kind of a really a processed food, even though it looks just like regular milk to us. Um, But certainly um, I would say I see a lot more dairy than I do eggs being an issue. Um, But... Definitely, um, it can be such a significant um, agent of change for a child who's reactive. So I'll give you an example. I have a little boy in my practice who's having really significant um, behavior problems and um, learning problems. And hearing his story, there were just things, you know, I thought, hmm, I think dairy might be an issue. He had some skin inflammation. He had a history of croup. Um, He had had issues around a year. That's when a lot of his issues started, which is often when uh, milk is introduced. And um, so I said, you know what, let's take him off dairy. And, you know, the parents really did not want to do it. Same kind of thing. They were like, what? No. They did it finally. And um, one month completely dairy-free, and they had a new child. They called me Mm. and said, "I, I it's like I have a whole new child. He's... He goes to school. He does what he's supposed to do. He's learning better. Everyone thought we medicated him. No, they did not medicate him. They just took him off of dairy. Um, Then I got a call from them a couple months later saying, you know, um, he's much worse now, and we don't know what to do, and he's still off dairy. So I, you know, we talked on the phone, and I said, you know, what is he eating? So she said, well, you know, suddenly she's mentioning these little bits of dairy he's having. She said, well, we started to add it back in. Like, you know, on Christmas he had a little bit and actually didn't really bother him. So then we thought, okay, you know, well, here and there he has it, but really, you know, he's been fine with that. And I was like, well, you're telling me he's not fine. So how about we stop the dairy again, 100% off. And they did. And again, I got the same phone call. I have a new child. We have him back again. You know, we didn't realize and and what it comes down to is I never want to stop a food, you know, a whole food that a child tolerates well. I want a child to have as diverse a diet as they can um, of obviously healthy, whole, fresh foods. Um, however, you know, there are times when foods like that can really become problematic. And it's always worth it in my mind to do a trial off. Nothing's going to happen in one month. You stop a food, you see how they do. If In one month, you should at least see some improvement. You know, sometimes it might take longer to see the full improvement, but in 30 days you should know. So from that perspective, yes, absolutely. I, you know, I'm always looking at things like dairy, gluten, eggs. Citrus is one a lot of people don't think about. Um, Nuts, obviously, peanuts, um, soy, corn. You know, all of those are really common allergens. A lot of them are hidden in foods. So usually I don't stop all of them at the same time. Usually we might choose one or two. Um, at the most, that we think are really a problem, potentially. Um, As far as your second question, um, you're going to have to remind me now. (laughs) You know what? I forgot. I was just sitting here thinking. I'm like, I actually forgot about (laughs) myself. (laughs) So I don't even remember. What I, um, what I, oh, I, I know what you. Were, I know what you were saying. You were talking about um, casein versus whey. Yeah, casein and, versus. And 
Yeah. So, you know, I have seen both. I've seen, I've seen kids react to casein. I've also seen, um, I've also seen way be an issue for some kids. And, uh, you know, if they have real problems with casein, sometimes, or with whey for that matter, I always stop dairy for that period of time. And when I say dairy, I mean, you know, cow's milk, goat's milk, all the different kinds of milk, you know, any animal milk. Um, but sometimes there are ways eventually to kind of, after you've taken it out, after you've done some work in terms of the microbiome in the gut, kind of letting the immune system settle down, sometimes you can ferment the foods. That even can go for gluten in some cases if you sourdough it a couple times over, um, not in, necessarily in celiac, but if someone has a gluten sensitivity or when it comes to things like dairy. Um, and I do look at casein versus whey. Goat's milk is much higher in whey, so if someone has a casein issue, sometimes they can tolerate something like goat's milk yogurt because it's fermented and it's mostly whey. So there are ways to kind of play with this over time, um, you know, and to try to integrate foods back into the diet if they can be tolerated. Um, but I do always recommend if someone's had allergies, um, either cooking foods for a long time or, um, or fermenting them, you know, sourdough, ferment, sprouting, um, you know, a lot of different ways to try to kind of help break down some of those proteins. And when I say allergy, I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about reintroducing if someone's anaphylactic. I'm talking about if they're sensitive or if they have a very mild allergy and it looks like they might be able to tolerate the food in, in a fermented way. Yeah. I got two more questions for you. I think we might run a little bit over. I never try to keep anyone more than an hour, but hopefully you can answer these real quickly. And I feel like I cheated the audience because I had so many questions, but the conversation was going so good. I was able to ask all the questions that I want to ask. But one of the things I, I came across, I interviewed uh, Dr. Allison Seebecker, um, wow, I think it was two years ago, and we had talked about this, and it came back up in your book, and I wanted you to talk about it as well because I, I needed to have my memory refreshed. But um, immune health in uh, C-section, if a baby's delivered by C-section, versus being uh, delivered vaginally and how that affects the immune system? Well, we've seen that children who are born vaginally um, have their gut basically seeded uh, by vaginal flora. And this is actually, nor, you know, the, the way it's sort of, we're sort of designed to work. Mm -hmm. um, when, when a baby is born by cesarean section, um, what they found in the digestive tract, um, instead of that vaginal flora, um, is skin flora, a predominance of skin flora. And so that, you know, obviously that's different. <laughs> you know, it's different yeah. as a way to kind of seed the gut in the beginning of life. And, and in addition to that, sometimes women who are, be, who are giving birth vaginally end up getting antibiotics. Um, but, but women who are, are delivering by C-section get a big dose of antibiotics, which actually can impact both them and the baby. And then women who are delivered by C-section, who have just had a major surgery, um, are going to be in pain, and they might really struggle a lot more with breastfeeding for many reasons. Um, well, that also can impact how the gut flora develops. So there are ways that um, 
the gut flora differs in a baby that's born vaginally versus born by C-section, and there is a increased risk of various kinds of chronic illnesses and autoimmune conditions that are associated with being born by C-section. Now, certainly it doesn't mean doesn't mean that if you're born by C, you know, your child's born by C-section, they're definitely going to have chronic illnesses or autoimmune conditions. And certainly it doesn't mean if your baby's born vaginally, for instance, my son was born vaginally, I did not get antibiotics, and yet he did have allergies. So there's certainly no guarantee that one is going to cause anything or save you from anything, but there are just ways to kind of stack the deck in your favor, if possible, especially with the increased rate of C-sections, when maybe it doesn't always have to be a C-section. Yeah. Wow. There's so much stuff I can talk to you. It's, it's like we're going to have to have a, a dirt cure part two, but, um, <laughs> but, um, cause I'm really, I really love kids. I have, I don't have kids of my own, but I have nieces and nephews and I've always enjoyed kids. But, um, you on one of your YouTube videos, I did a various research and I went on one of your YouTube videos and I saw one of your lectures and you started your lectures off with a quote and I wanted to read it to you. When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything in the universe, and that was John Muir, I believe is is the name. Yeah, there. John Muir. Uh-huh. Yeah, John Muir. Um, explain that quote, and, and what does it actually mean mean to you? Well, the reason that I put it in the beginning of my talks, um, so, you know, this idea, there's this idea that um, in medicine, I think, I mean, this is certainly not, I think, the whole meaning of this quote, but that's the beauty of, <laughs> that's the beauty of yeah. writing is yeah. we can apply it to whatever we're thinking about. Um, you know, in medicine, we've become very reductionist, and, and in science in general, where we think we can take everything apart, look at it in its most sort of purified form, and then we try to make these, we try to come to conclusions about very, very complex processes of nature um, by looking in these kind of little pieces. Um, and, and I think there's something to be said, obviously, for, you know, trying to take things apart and understand each piece, but really we have to acknowledge that we are looking at very, very complex systems. The gut on its own, you know, with all of the microorganisms in there, um, with the, with the whole immune system that's in there, with all the neurotransmitters that are in there, um, you know, it's a, it's a universe. It's just a universe right there. I actually, you know, in a teaspoon of soil, we have, you know, nearly as many organisms as there are people on the planet. We don't, you know, we don't have any sense of the level of complexity that we're engaged in. And so we have all these, we make these changes, and then we have all these unintended consequences that we don't, yes. we don't, um, perceive at the time that we're we're very short-sighted which is partly because we can't see the whole picture i mean you know we're we're smart but we're not that smart you know and and so you know we're learning now for instance just about antibiotics we were discussing earlier you know you take one di one round of antibiotics can change the gut flora for up to one year hmm. you know the, a recent study showed that and it's really that's really a huge unintended consequence, right? So, you know, we've removed the appendix for all these years, um, even presumptively before anyone got appendicitis. Meanwhile, it turns out that the appendix is actually a, a trove of ancient flora that's constantly replenishing our, our gut diversity. 
So we just, I think we just have this uh, limited way of looking at things, and when we make a change, we don't think of the big picture. So that's what I love about that quote is we really have to honor, you know, the complexity of nature because nature's had a longer time to work these things out than we have, and, and it does a pretty good job most of the time. Yeah, yeah. It's like science is one of those things that we're if people think it's concrete and it's like it's ever evolving. We're still finding out more and more because even if, well, I think what five or six, seven years ago, no one was talking about the microbiome. Now everybody's talking about it. So it's like everything is continuously evolving, and if you're not keeping up with it, you're going to be pretty much uh, left behind. But um, I even hate to let you go. <laughs> talking to you, but I know you have a life. But um, if you could give us your website and maybe tell us, because I know there's a lot of uh, children out there, parents out there looking for help for their children if you do Skype consultations or anything like that. Yeah, I absolutely do. I would say, you know, many, many of my patients are, um, you know, they might come to see me and then I, we might, you know, they might be from far away and we might mm-hmm. follow by, you know, by phone or by Skype. Um, so I have done that for many years and, uh, you know, and of course I love to get to see my patients in person whenever possible, but, um, you know, I have a practice and I hope, you know, the reason that I wrote the dirt cure was so that people could have a a resource to get started with because, um, you know, we need, we need more doctors, more, um, healthcare practitioners and more parents to feel like, they know what the first steps are, um, and then you know, and then people come to me, and we take it from there. Yeah, and your website is Dr. Maya. Is it Dr. Maya Sheetree Klein? Is dot com is what it is, or? Um, yeah. So there's Maya Sheetree Klein dot com, or mm-hmm. if you just go to DirtCure dot com, it will also take you to the. It'll also take you to um, my website, which has information about my book. It has information about my practice, and it has information about. Um, the Terrain Institute, which is a training program that I'm going to be starting um, in the new year. So you can look out for all those things at dirtcure.com. Yeah, and the book is available on Amazon. If you go to Amazon, I think everybody pretty much shops Amazon now, unless you have a local library. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm a but big, I will say I'm a big fan of – I've been doing some book readings in independent bookstores, and I have to say Amazon is so convenient, but um, – to me, I love going into a bookstore and buying at the local bookstores um, because it's just so much fun to go in and get to touch the books and kind of be in that nice setting. So Amazon or go to your local independent bookstore and, and have a little enjoyment for yourself. Give yourself a treat. Yeah, I'm like you. I'm a fan of the books. So a lot of people like Kindle. I'm like, I want a book. I like to read the books. <laughs> I'm a big highlighter as well. I like to sit there and highlight <laughs> stuff. But yeah. Dr. Maya, thank you so much for your time. Actually, I, I'd love to have you back on at some point in the future. We'll have to figure out what we can do. But thank you so much for your time and uh, enjoy your evening. Really enjoyed the interview. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thanks. All right another one in the books and um i kept her seven minutes over can't believe that guys but um sometimes information is is just that valuable but um didn't get to any of the questions a lot of the questions that i had sometimes the interview takes you in 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 a different 
different route as, as what you plan, but got a lot of good information in there. If you want to know more information, and I would have said go and read the book. The book is a really good book. You'll learn a lot, especially if you have children. If you want to cut down, reduce your doctor visits, this is something that you would absolutely um, have a a good investment. Be a good investment for your money to go out and get the dirt cure. I think it's two hundred and something odd pages, but it's real good reading, and you can. Sometimes I don't go chapter by chapter, start with chapter one. I'll start in the middle of the book and maybe work my way out or start in a chapter where I feel like interests me and then maybe go to some other chapters. A lot of times we get so hung up in an order, but if you're like me, you don't always follow the order. So um, just read the book the way you want to read it back to front, uh, start in the middle, however you want to read it. But again, um, really enjoyed this interview with Dr. Maya Shutri Klein. As I said, I have a lot of um, nieces and nephews and and kids just in general that are around me. And I always feel like um, our kids need help now. Our kids are out there. They're experiencing a lot of things. And if you can help them with their health, it's all the more better for them. So uh, this Wednesday, we'll have another show. Actually, someone here from uh, locally from um, the Florida area where I am. I actually met her in person. Her name is Tasha Lee, and we'll be talking about how she ended up uh, getting her diabetes under, under control. She's a type 1 diabetic with fruit, which is something that's I don't know much about. I'm looking forward to interviewing her to learn more about it. So we'll have Tasha Lee um, with the whole talking about diabetes and fruit and how she managed to get her diabetes under control with just eating fruit. So it'll be a great show, and that's coming up Wednesday. So same fat time, same fat channel. Look forward to talking to you Wednesday. Peace and love, y'all. Good night.